Yeah, this is Bookaholics Anonymous. I'm Alicia. And I'm Francesca. And this week, I fucked up. (laughs) I have my thesis due in two and a half weeks. And I have two other group projects that I'm working on for school. Just, you know. Casual. Stressful time. Yeah, you, aren't you, you guys are ending soon. Like in a month, right? Yeah, like, I think the week after Thanksgiving. Oh my gosh, dude. Yikes. And my thesis is due on the third, and I just hit 10 pages today. Dude, don't even worry about it, because I think I was at, like, 10 pages a month out from when I was, do- like, I was supposed to. No, I was probably, like, 15 pages, but, like, you know, I had, like, 10 more pages to go, so. Uh, yeah, it's just, like, really stressful. On top of working two or three times a week and getting my thesis done, reading has just been, unfortunately, placed on the back burner. And as you, Alicia, know, (laughs) my insomnia won't let me sleep. So to combat that, I do the best I can to make myself fall asleep by looking up creepy murder cases, as one does when they have anxiety and night terrors. They make it worse by Googling child murder. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Do you want to talk about what you're drinking tonight? Oh, yes. So I am drinking a grapefruit beer. Ooh, different. I feel like, I think it's German. I think it's German. Yeah, I think it's, yep, imported from Germany. Francesca, you're a dope, which is a great segue into tonight. But I'm drinking, oh God, I'm going to get reamed for this pronunciation. Schossehofer. <laughs> Yikes, I'm not even going to try to. Two years of German, folks. Absolutely nothing. I am drinking a Jack and Coke. Ooh, a new one for you. I know. It is my preferred drink usually, but I've been trying not to drink them because they are a lot of calories. But I bought a Diet Coke, so. Okay, that's fair. Which, like, obviously I would rather have, like, a a normal Coke, but I'm like, "Mm, mmm. Better not. Better not, (laughs) exactly. Did you, have you heard about the, the Strand scandal that's happening right now? Yeah, so... It's quite interesting because I've had a couple people who don't even read, like are not part of the publishing world, mm-hmm. ask me about this. They're like, I've heard there's some some tea with the strand. Yeah, they're fucking And I'm those. like, oh girl, yeah, I didn't even know there was this tea because I don't spend my time digging into the, the inner workings. It was trending on Twitter. I know, but I like... Which is like nuts. I know. So like I, I found out from Twitter because a bunch of people were retweeting and... And just going in on Nancy. And I was like, you know what? Nancy, like your friends. Yeah. I was like, you deserve it because you're a fucking horrible person. Oh, shit. You're going to sink money into Amazon stocks. Yeah. Fuck Amazon. And then take take advantage of the pay, the uh, paycheck protection program and yeah. still lay off all those employees. Go fuck yourself. Yeah. Honestly. Anyways, if you're in New York City area... Don't don't buy from the Strand. Go to McNally Jackson. Yeah. Or uh, Books of Wonder. Literally any other independent. Literally. Because that shit is just annoying. I love the Strand. I just went and spent $50 there like two weeks ago for a like self-care weekend. Yes, we love that. Right. But you can't be doing that. Like You can't. It's just shitty. No. That's tra- don't love like, it. Trash. But don't yeah, I thought that was quite interesting how how so many it like trended on Twitter. Like that's insane. Yeah. That doesn't happen to the book community. <laughs> no, we're so boring. <laughs> I know. Like nothing ever happens. So this week I dropped the ball and I don't have a book prepared because I'm a scumbag who has Mm, a lot of excuses, but whatever. We're not having it done this week. So I want to tell you the story of a Guardian article I read. And all the whole story is from this Guardian article. 100% chance that there is way more information out there. But I just read this one Guardian article that had a fuck ton of information and was really thorough. Okay. But it's called The Girl in the Box, The Mysterious Crime That Shocked Germany by Zan Rice. I feel like I've heard of that, like the girl in the box. Well, so there are two cases of the girl in the box. Okay. So if anyone listening wants to Google it, definitely when you look up girl in the box, add Germany to the end of that. Because the other case is actually, I think, here in New York. Girl in the box was kidnapped by a couple and held in a box under their bed and horrible things happened to her. So 
two very, 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 very different cases <laughs> with the same name. Got it. So yeah, this is a story. I realize that this isn't like Halloween-y. And I also told my uncle I would be doing The Exorcist this week, which like... Sad. Tears. I really wanted to. I got the audiobook. I started listening to it. And the audiobook is read by the author, who has like this really haunting, creepy voice. And it's really good so far. But I just like don't have the patience or the time to sit down and listen to it and take notes and whatever. So... Next year. <laughs> Next year. Maybe. Who knows? Or maybe I'll just randomly pull it out in the middle of, like, March and just be like, hey. <laughs> That'd be awesome. <laughs> um, so for this week, yeah, I'm going to be doing this Guardian article. Excuse me. RIP. Not only did I fuck up and not have a book ready for today, I'm not wearing any Oswego gear. Oh, my gosh. You've really dropped the ball. Which is, like, literally the first time I've ever done that. I'm always wearing some sort of Oswego apparel when we record. I know. R.I.P. to that. But anyway, now <laughs> let's get into the book. The so, book? The, the case. Jesus Christ. <laughs> the article. The article. The article. Okay. So like I said, the article is called The Girl in the Box, The Mysterious Crime That Shocked Germany by Zan Rice. The article mentions the case being the equivalent to that of Germany's Madeleine McCann. Ooh. Yeah. And it's, like, really fucked up, and, it like, you think one thing in the beginning, and then you think another, and it's just, like, I don't know what to believe at the end of this. So I'm interested to see your thoughts once I tell you what happened. I'm excited. So it takes place in uh, southern Germany. Got it. On this huge lake called Emersi. Mm -hmm. I'm going to do my best with pronunciations, but homegirl's dyslexic, let's not forget that. <laughs> We're going to do our very best. I took German... I am German does not mean I know anything about it. I Ask took me note. to curse someone out and I'll fucking, I can do that. I, took I can note. call you a shit face in German, but don't ask me to say I anything else. No German, but went to Germany. Still could not pronounce right to you any sort of German word other than one, two, and three and apple and water. That's it. <sighs> That's, that is my extent. And Mine I is. If I have, like, if I'm confused or something, I just go, was? Was? <laughs> or, uh, tschüss. That's always my favorite. Because it's, like, it was so cute. They would always say it when they would leave, like, and they say bye to their friends. They'd be like, yeah. tschüss. And I'm like, oh, you guys are so cute. I love you. So, the story takes place on this huge lake called Emersi. And I looked it up on Google Maps. It's almost uh, the same size as, like, on Lake Ontario, but, like, vertical instead of horizontal. And just a little bit longer at the top. That's a really big lake. Yeah, it's fucking huge. It's, um, I want to say it's like south, southeast-ish of Germany. Okay. I think in that region. So the lake is a spot where wealthy Germans from Munich will go on vacation. So like a lot of, it's like a big vacation spot. A very wealthy area. Right. So this, specifically the story takes place in two towns that sit very much, like, right at the top of the north side of the lake. Got it. Etching M MRC, which I'll just call Etching, and Schondorf. Sounds about right. Pat myself on the back for that one. Um, and they sit two miles apart. Okay. And all that separates the two towns is this big spruce forest. Mm -hmm. And just, like, a footpath and, like, oh. cycle path through it. Okay. So, like, yeah. Very ominous. Yeah. So... Uh, the story starts on Tuesday, September 15th, 1981. Ten-year-old Ursula Herman gets home from, uh, gets back to her home in Etching from her first day of school, which I was like, that's super late. September 15th? That's, they actually usually start earlier than that, from what yeah. I remember. I started, like, the week after Labor Day, or, like, I know, on the but, 7th. like, uh, the German exchange students that we would have come to our school mm -hmm. definitely would start, like, in August. I'm pretty yeah. sure. So that is like very maybe that's weird. obviously that maybe that's changed. In maybe the last... it's a regional thing because they were yeah. from northwest Germany. Maybe so maybe that's what it is because I mean that's definitely a thing here in the U.S. But yeah. that seems super late to me. Yeah, um, like I said, it's almost it's been 39 years since this happened. So obviously things have changed <laughs> since then. <laughs> yeah, just a little, a little. Um, so when she gets home from school, she practiced piano with her brother Michael. And then she left for her gymnastics lessons in Schondorf later that afternoon. So she's in one town, she goes to the other. So she takes the typical bike 
route through the forest to get there. So, like, you... Right, right. A lot of tourists and people just, like, walk through the forest. Like, that's just, like, a normal thing that happens. It's not, like, unusual for her to do that. Right. So, when the lesson is over, she goes to her cousin's house in Shondorf for dinner. Mm -hmm. And then around, like, 7.20 p.m., Ursula's mother called the house and said that she needs to come home. It's getting late. It's not fully dark out yet, but it's, like, just about to sunset. And the ride, bike ride was, like, ten minutes. So she just wanted her to get home before dark kind of thing. Right. Makes sense. She's yeah. how old again? Ten. Sorry. Ten. She's okay. ten. Totally so, understandable. Yeah. Um, the fact that she would let her daughter ride her bike. I mean, again, it's the, 80, like, beginning of the 80s. And it was two miles, you said? Yeah. Between... Like a ten... Yeah. yeah a, like I... a ten minute bike ride. I'm not... Right. I mean, I feel like my parents probably would have been chill with that. Yeah, especially if I'm going to, like, a family member's house. Right. Like, if I'm just... If I... If there's a destination on the other end. Right. And it didn't seem like it was, like, a super busy... Like, it's not a throughway or anything, so... It's a, like, a very... I don't want to say it's sleepy. It's a vacation spot for people. So you got right. tourists coming through. Right. It's on a lake, like, very relaxed. Right. So, a half an hour later, Ursula hadn't gotten home yet. Her mom calls the cousin's house again, and the aunt says Ursula had left 25 minutes earlier. Don't like this. So, instantly, the mom and the aunt knew something, something was wrong. Something was suspect. Something was suspicious. So, Ursula's father in Etching and her uncle in Shundoff both immediately ran out of the house and from either sides of the forest ran the footpath until mm-hmm. they met in the middle, like, calling out for her. Right. And obviously got no response. Yep. So, within an hour, the neighbors, police, and firemen had become involved in the search. They searched the waters and had struggled to get through, like, the undergrowth of what I assume is, like, all of the trees around. Right. Right, right, right. So, it gets close to midnight and it's raining the sniffer dogs that they had actually leave their handle lead their handlers uh, into the brush uh, away from the lake, like the other side of the lake. Because originally, I think they assumed she had like tr- like fallen into the lake or something because they were heavily looking in the lake. Right. So about there's a lot of math I had to do for this. Oh no! Thank Ew. you, Google conversion charts, <laughs> because obviously in Europe they do meters. Yeah, kilometers and all that. Euros. They also... I don't know if Germany uses euros. I don't think they do. Yeah, they do. Okay, well, at this time, they didn't. Oh, interesting. They had uh, Deutschmarks. So I had to convert that to everything. Yeah. Oh, man. So, <laughs> um, so 20 meters away from the footpath, or 22 yards. I'm going to do. I'm gonna say both, just so you get it, and so our... Listeners that aren't from the U.S. also understand. So 20 meters or 22 yards away from the footpath was Ursula's little red bike. My heart is breaking when I read that. Like her, just like, I just picture like a little girl's red tricycle. That's what I was picturing. I literally had a red tricycle when I was younger. So I was picturing the red tricycle. It breaks my heart. So as soon as the sun came up, the search was immediately restarted. Officers fanned out through the forest which was right on the border of a really expensive private school, Landheim Schundorf. The school was founded in 1905 and it was preferred by Bavarian politicians and business peoples for their kids just to send them there. Right. So they had a helicopter above the forest, a police boat and divers in the lake, and they were doing everything. So a little about Ursula. She was 10 years old when this happened. She was the youngest of four children. She was 1.43 meters or 4.7 feet tall. Got it. She had short blonde hair. She was described as energetic and intelligent, and she loved to sing and paint. Her parents were a school teacher and housewife, and unlike the rest of the people that lived in Etching, like, unlike the rest of most of the community, the Hermans weren't wealthy. They didn't have, like, a lot of money. Okay. Yeah, got it. So the only reason that they could build their home near the lake was because Ursula's great-grandfather had purchased that land near the lake, like, a few decades before. Otherwise, they wouldn't have been able to right there. So when she went missing, she was wearing green cords, which I'm assuming is a sweater. Right. A gray woolen cardigan and red-brown sandals. Interesting combination. <laughs> She's 10, so she dressed herself, clearly. <laughs> 
something I would have dressed myself in as, t- as a 10 year old. <laughs> so what she looked like and what she was wearing was broadcasted all over the radio. So 36 hours after her disappearance that Thursday, the house phone rang at the Herman residence. On the other end was silence. And then a short and familiar jingle that they recognized from a traffic bulletin on Bayarn, Bayarn, I don't know, Bayarn, whatever the fuck, Wouldn't know. three radio station. So it's followed up by more si- silence, the, uh, the jingle again, and then they hang up. So the parents received three more similar calls over a period of hours that afternoon. The police team that had kind of set up shop in the house mm-hmm. started recording the calls. Mm-hmm. So the next day, Friday, the mailman delivered an envelope addressed to Ursula's father, and it was marked urgent. Inside, it was the ransom note, and it was made using letters and words cut out from, like, tabloid newspapers and magazines. And it was composed in, like, broken German. The kidnappers opened by saying they kidnapped Ursula, which I feel like is kind of obvious. Yeah, no shit. And, yeah, and if they wanted to see Ursula alive again, they needed to pay, pay two million Deutschmarks. Which would have been 450,000 euros, which in today's dollars, I was not about to do the inflation math with that. So in today's no. dollars, it would have been $533,745. So it's still half a million dollars. Yeah. Who has a cool half mil just lying around? Couldn't be me. Mm-hmm. Jeff Bezos. He has a couple, <laughs> a couple of those. So they explain in the letter... That when they got a phone call that played the jingle, just to say if they will pay or not. And if they call the police or don't pay, they'll kill Ursula. Got it. Great. The kidnappers obviously expected the letter to get there the day before. Right. So when the phone rang that afternoon and they heard the jingle, Ursula's mother agreed to pay the ransom immediately. She also asked for proof of life. What... uh, And it was what did her daughter... What were the nicknames of her daughter's two stuffed toys right and when she didn't get an answer she like begged them she's like talk to me say something something from ursula so the second letter arrived on uh, on monday the 21st of september and she went missing on the 15th so okay. like a little bit over a week right with weirdly specific instructions they wanted the money to be paid and used 100 deutschmark bills packed in a suitcase and the father her father had to drive alone in a yellow fiat 600 going no more faster than 90 kilometers per hour, which is 55 miles per hour. Bro, what the fuck? To a yet-to-be-determined location. All right, sis, shut the fuck up. (laughs) You're asking way too much here. So, like, as I said before, the Hermans weren't very wealthy. So a neighbor actually ended up raising part of the ransom, and the state agreed to pay the rest of it. Right. To bring her home. Right. So, no more instructions came, no calls, nada. And the police had, like, no strong leads. So, two weeks had passed since her disappearance, and the police decide they're going to search the forest again. More than 100 officers assembled and 10 sniffer dogs. The woods were divided into four parts, and quarters were divided into smaller grids. So, it was literally, like, they were had, like, a chessboard, and they're like, we're searching every small box on right, here. Right, 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 right. So, a team of officers each searched every piece of that grid one by one using metal rods to like poke the ground as they went right to see if they could hit something oh my gosh what the hell ursula has now been missing for 19 days four days into the search covering most of the forest there was a break at 9 30 a.m in a tiny glade around 800 meters so a little less than half a mile away from the footpath she was on an officer hit something solid Mm, I don't like this. So they dig up underneath the leaves in a layer of clay. They find a brown blanket covering a wooden board. Moving the board, they find another. It was kind of like a lid to a box. And the box was 72 by 60 centimeters. So about two feet feet by one foot uh, box. And it was kind of, they equated it to like a small coffee table. It was painted green and locked from the top with seven sliding bolts. I don't like this. Using a shovel, the officer used it to, like, force the lid open. And inside was Ursula. She was... Right. Dead. The officer said in the article, the officer, like, wept as he lifted her out of the box. And it was just, like, again, like, this beautiful... Like, even though this isn't a book, like, just the imagery is just, like, 
so well written. When you like when you think about like the little red bike and just I know you don't like it, but someone just texted me. Sorry. Um <laughs> I know I have friends outside of you. It's shocking. <laughs> oh, man. When told about their daughter's death, the mother was obviously, like, inconsolable. Obviously. And her father asked if she had been hurt before she died. Right. So, short answer, no. Nothing. She wasn't assaulted. She wasn't restrained. I'm assuming they deconstructed her body to put it in the box well so i'll get i'll get to that okay 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 so the autopsy found that ursula died within 30 minutes to about five hours of being buried there was no sign of a struggle or even movement inside the box so it didn't even look like she was like scratching walls or anything like that okay so the doctors presumed she was drugged before being put in the box possibly with nitrous oxide so it seemed that the kidnappers had planned to keep ursula alive the box itself, so it was, again, two feet by one foot. Right. The box itself was 1.4 meters deep or four and a half feet deep. Okay. It had a shelf and a seat that doubled as a toilet. It was stocked with three bottles of water, 12 cans of Fanta, six large tar- chocolate bars, four packs of biscuits, and two packs of chewing gum. It had, like, a weird library in it with 21 books with a full, like, what range of different genres. It had, like, comics, thrillers romance novels westerns like everything in it how is she supposed to read it in this box it's fucking dark <laughs> well i'm assuming there was a light like well okay so yes there was a light <laughs> and a portable radio turned to day on three which was the same station that played the jingle that our parents kept hearing on the phone right and to allow her to breathe the box had like a makeshift ventilation system made from plastic plumbing t- pipes which extended to the ground level right good job me i saved i didn't save but i put a picture of a link or a link to the picture of what it looked like and i'm sending it to you now so i just sent you a picture of okay like what the box looked like inside got it it's a drawing it's not actual pictures of it this is so bizarre yeah what the fuck so the constructor of the box however like didn't realize that without a machine to move and circulate that air oxygen would ultimately end up running out Mm-hmm. So because of the size and the weight of the box, it was 60 kilogram, kilograms or 132 pounds. The police believe they were looking for two cap- kidnappers, not just one. So they would have known the forest well because right. of the spot they chose was well hidden and w- the, it avoided any attention digging the hole. Right. So trying to find the culprits, the cops offered a $30,000 Deutschmark reward for information, which would be 18185 US dollars today. Got it. So st- immediately tips obviously start flooding in for that kind of fucking money. Right. So the name, I'm going to say this with an American accent because I'm sorry, I'm not going to just <laughs> shoot myself in the foot like that. So Warner Masaryk brought to police attention. He was 31 years old. He was a trained car mechanic and he dropped out of school at 15. Now, currently, he run well, not currently, but at the time, he was running his own TV repair business. Okay. He was described as imposing and tall with, like, a beer belly and had a quick temper. <laughs> oh, no. And he was not very well like in etching. So he was also heavily in debt, owing more than 140,000 Deutschmarks or 84,866 US dollars today. Join the club, sis. Yeah. Join every college graduate with student loans. (laughs) Seriously? So he was at the time living with his wife and two children just a few hundred meters away from the Hermans. So the cops look at it and say he's a car mechanic and a TV repairman. So he's good with his hands. He's super in debt. So he needs money. All of this equates to his ability and motive to commit the kidnapping murder. Right. So he gets... uh, questioned by police one week after her body is found, and Masaryk at the time couldn't remember his whereabouts for the night that she went missing. That's suspicious. So, 24 hours later, he ends up providing an alibi. He was playing R- the Risk, the board game. I love it. Love it. With his wife and two friends. Oh, boy. Which I'm, like, honestly, in, like, any court of law, not just, like, America, but, like, anywhere, I feel like a spouse shouldn't be allowed to be an alibi. Right. Because, like, a spouse or a parent. Like, no. (laughs) No. 
No. So a search of his home and his workshop found nothing that would that linked him to the actual crime. Right. So later that month, while examining the box, the forensics team found a fingerprint on a piece of duct tape. Ooh. Thousands of local, Masaryk included, were fingerprinted and no matches to the duct tape. But police were still suspicious of Masaryk and his involvement. So, by the end of January of 1982, so September, October, November, December, Jan- like, so like six months after this whole event, right? he was arrested as well as two of his friends. So, they interrogated the friends for a number of days before they were ultimately released because mm-hmm. there's nothing on him. Right. Another month later, one of Masaryk's acquaintances was also questioned. And I... Love the German language, don't get me wrong. But <laughs> goddamn, being dyslexic in German has to be rough. Like, <laughs> my heart goes out to you guys. Oh my gosh. So Klaus Pfaffinger, but it's spelt P-F-A-F-F-I-N-G-E-R. You lost me like five letters ago. So Klaus Pfaffinger is literally described by the author of this article as an unemployed mechanic with a drinking problem. He... Can you imagine just like your whole life being summed up just like that? Wow. They really went in for it, didn't they? They were like, fuck this guy. <laughs> so Pfaffinger's landlord approached the police saying he saw Pfaffinger driving his moped with a spade strapped to his side in the weeks before the crime. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Moped? Right there, you know he did it. Right there. <laughs> um, in the article, they spelled moped, M-O-P-E-D, which, like, looks like mopped. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like, I almost, like, I had to put a hyphen in there. Otherwise, my brain would have read mopped. Yeah, so I feel been you. Like, I feel you. He's riding a mop. A mop? Mm-hmm. Is he a witch? <laughs> which Sanderson sister rode the mop? I think it was Sarah. Sarah Sanderson? Yes. My mom was just watching Hocus Pocus love that he also owed money to his landlord so little suspicious as soon as he was brought in he quickly was like nah i'm innocent i didn't do this of course but on the second day of his questioning while the interrogators like took a break from interrogating him uh he asked the police secretary what if i know something um okay excuse me sir sir why didn't you tell us yesterday waste our time like that (laughs) <laughs> sorry uh so faffinger told them that Masaryk offered him 1000 deutschmarks i didn't do the conversion on that because i really didn't give that much of a fuck right 1000 deutschmarks and a color tv to dig a hole in the forest in early of september 81 he dug a hole in the forest for a color tv honestly i would too <laughs> at that point <laughs> like I, I don't i don't know anything i just dug a hole yeah right Anyway, he said he dug the hole and later saw a box inside of it. Um, Believing his statements, they took him into the forest and asked him to lead them to the burial site because he dug the hole so he should know where it is. Right, 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 right. However, he couldn't lead them to the site or come anywhere close. What a dumb bitch. (laughs) So when they returned to the station, he immediately recanted his statement. During at least 10 subsequent interrogations, he refused to repeat that confession and was ultimately released without charge. He's just trying to get some of that money. Yeah. So summer of 82, his, now that his name is literally, his name is Mud. Trash. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Masaryk decided he wanted to move away from etching with his family. So the lead detective ended up, that was actively pursuing Masaryk. Right. uh, Was replaced and they cast the net of suspects wider. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. About 100,000 color flyers requesting help with the investigation were distributed nationwide. And the case was featured on German TV shows. I'm not even going to try and say the German names. Like <laughs> they used like every letter of the alphabet in one of them. More power to them, I guess. Mm, not doing that. So the <laughs> American English translations was case number XY and unsolved. And it was, mo- it was featured on a show that was similar to, I think it was like similar to America's most wanted, but unsolved, I guess. With the new police team, they ended up finding more evidence of the kidnappers' methods, including a wire that they had strung up through the trees to work as, like, a um, alert system. So, like, if someone tripped the wire, they would hear someone coming during the kidnapping. Right. Looking further into suspects, found nothing new. Hmm. So, by the end of the 80s, almost a decade after her disappearance, the case 
was cold. It was a cold case. It was a cold one. <laughs> but um. So the family grieved her death privately and they never spoke to the press. They made a conscious decision not to let the hunt for their kid for the kidnapper consume their lives or define them. Right. As a family. Right. So Ursula's mother blamed herself for not going to her, the cousin's house and getting Ursula herself. Um, Ursula's father and her sisters found peace in their strong Christian Christian faith. They had another brother who found solace in surfing. Love that for him. Honestly, <laughs> that's dope. Michael, the brother that had been teaching Ursula the piano the day that she went missing, mm-hmm. was actually in his last year of high school when she was kidnapped. And he said that he was playing music at his friend's house and his mom called panicking, telling him Ursula was missing. He ran home and joined the search for his sister and he was just absolutely devastated by losing her. Right. So in the mid 2000s, the Bavarian State Office for Criminal Investigations, try saying that five times fast. I couldn't. (laughs) Decided to take a hard look at the backlog of cold cases that they had. Her case was chosen because it was still considered like a stain and mark on the reputation for like the local police department because they never found them. Right. And it was pretty high profile. Makes sense. Exactly. Everybody in the country knew about it kind of thing. Right. Uh, Prosecutors had hoped that with the development in DNA testing and all the progress they've made in forensic science would help solve this case. And there was so much evidence for them to go through. Like, and they re-examined it all piece by piece, like very carefully. So they ended up finding numerous hairs. And from that, the experts were able to build DNA profiles for multiple different people. Like, more than two. That wasn't specified, but I'm assuming. Okay, because, like, originally they were like, oh, yeah, I think two people. It's two, yeah. Right, so I was just curious. So they they ended up getting a match in 2007. Got it. And it's a genetic sample from from a screw on the box, and it matched glass found in a Munich penthouse of a wealthy woman that had been brutally murdered in May of 2006. However... On trial for that murder was the victim's nephew, who had only been a few years old at the time of Ursula's murder. Right, right. So a judge looked at this and ruled there was no link between the two cases, and the nephew was convicted of his aunt's murder. And there's still a mystery, like, it's still not known how the samples matched. Like, sometimes they're just, it's very, very rare, but sometimes they're just, it just happens. Yeah, I've I've heard of cases in the U.S. that happening. Yeah. Once or twice. It's very, very rare. Right. They're like, there's no way this kid was like two years old when this happened. (laughs) The clock was ticking for the prosecutors because her death was originally ruled a kidnapping with deadly consequences, Mm -hmm. which carries a statute of limitations of 30 years. So like they were coming up on that. Right. Mark real quick. So prosecutors at this point had at least five years before the criminal would just be in the clear. Like nothing could be done. Right. So they went back and reviewed the original suspects. Faffinger, the non-accomplice, because he said he was an accomplice, but, like, there was nothing proving he was, but, like, it was suspicious. He should have been. Right. He was dead. (laughs) Oh, awesome. So, Warner Masaryk was still kicking, still living, and he was up in the uh, North Germany with his wife, and he ran a boat accessory business. Okay. (laughs) Face. It's a little weird. So in 2007, he was put under surveillance and an undercover cop was sent to befriend him. Like, if I was ever a cop, you could never get me to do that because I don't befriend people. Francesca doesn't even like working the cash register. And that's a goddamn fact. (laughs) Nope. Like, I just force myself into your life. I don't try to be your friend. I'm like, this is happening. You can literally ask any person I became friends with in college. I just showed up outside their room and was like, this is true. This is it. True. You're stuck with me. (laughs) They planted recording devices in his car and in his house, and they also tapped his phone. So in October of 2007, his home ended up being searched, and he was asked to give a saliva sample, but it didn't match any of the genetic profiles found. Hmm. So the last hope was an item taken from Masaryk's home and it was an old reel-to-reel tape recorder. They wanted to see if this was a device that played the jingle Ursula's parents heard on the phone. Right. So a sound expert who was given access to the original recordings of the calls uh-huh. spent months performing tests on the tape recorder and concluded, yes, it had to, be a- had to have been used in the kidnapping. This is not looking good. So in May, tw- uh, May 28th, 2008, 
Almost 27 years after her death, Masaryk was arrested and flown to Augsburg, Augsburg, uh, a city near Etching. And I actually also pulled up a picture of this creepy ass motherfucker. Oh boy. Because whether he did it or not, he's still creepy looking. He just looks like a 70s. Oh, absolutely not. Yeah, no. There's no way else to put it. Okay. Those tinted glasses are not doing anything for you, sir. (laughs) I don't care if it was the 80s. Well, this is 2009, I think. He was stuck in the 80s. Yeah. Come on. Like every, every adult that lived through the 80s, they're all stuck in it. That's right. So Ursula's parents, who actually ended up staying in the same house all these years, they were notified days before the arrest that the arrest was going to happen. Oh. So the German legal system is actually really interesting to me. I've done some uh, like research for classes on it before. The ger- in the in the legal system, relatives of victims of certain serious crimes are allowed to formally join the prosecution as co-plaintiffs. And they had a word for it. My dumbass didn't write it down. Okay. But I'm just going to, from this point on, I'm referring to them as co-plaintiffs. Got it. Becoming a co-plaintiff allowed them to view all the evidence in the case, request witnesses, ask questions to the judge. Got it. So the offer was made to Ursula's parents, but they didn't want to relive the details and the trauma of Ursula's death, which is totally fair. Understandable. So it was agreed that Michael, their oldest son, would be the co-plaintiff, which again, good call. Now in his 40s, Michael was teaching religion and music at uh, all-girls school, I think it was, in Augsburg. Okay. His friend told a newspaper he had such a deep sense of justice that really drove him. Right. Through everything. So the trial ended up starting in February of 2009. And Masaryk's wife is also on trial as an accessory to what happened. Ooh, spicy. And that's all we really hear about what happened with the wife. Except for like her verdict. That's where I was going with that. So Masaryk insisted he was innocent as he read from a 20 page statement. Could you imagine just having to sit there? Are you kidding? Hitting me. Five, like that in my courtroom, it would be like, you have five pages, make them count. <laughs> Double spaced. Not today. <laughs> Double spaced? It was easy for prosecutors to find evidence of him basically being a shitty person. <laughs> His kids didn't have anything nice to say about him as far as like being a dad. Oh, shit. And he's had previous run-ins with the authorities, which included 2004 was convicted of fraud for falsifying documents. <laughs> Your face. Wow. Okay. You went uh, guppy fish there. Yeah. And then there was also a story from 1974 about him coming home from Oktoberfest and the family dog had like knocked over the trash bin. And as a punishment, he put the dog in the freezer and said he was, as a punishment, he was sending them to Siberia. Oh my gosh. What the fuck? So like we got a little bit of animal cruelty in there mixed with a little fraud charges. Oh boy. But most of the evidence laid out was mostly circumstantial. So he needed money. That was the murder. That was the murder. He needed money. That was the motive. He had the means to make the box in secret at his workshop at the TV repair business. Right. And was seen listening to police radio while Ursula was missing. In 2007, while his phone was tapped, he was heard talking to a phone, uh, talking to a friend from Etching about the statute of limitations on Ursula's case. That's suspicious. That's weird. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. The key, though, was the revoked confession from Faffinger and the tape recorder. They insisted the confession was credible because he described the burial site in detail from the size of the glade that the hole was in to the dimensions of the hole and even the conditions of the soil. Okay. Testifying in court, the officer that led Faffinger through the forest said he was an excellent actor and a practice swindler. Those are the two ways I want to be described in my death. (laughs) Oh, boy. So the tape recorder was so, was very important, but very controversial piece of evidence. Right. So during his 2007 questioning, Masaryk said he had bought it, bought the tape recorder a few weeks before at a flea market with his wife while they were like on a mini vacation. Mm-hmm. But he couldn't prove who sold it to him. And nobody at the flea market that day remembered an item like that being on sale. This state's expert who specializes it, who specialized in phonetics, not audio, said you could hear a couple of clicking sounds. Like when you'd push the buttons on a tape recorder to press like play, mm-hmm. uh, you could hear that during the recording of the jingle. 
Right. And when she pressed the buttons, they sound identical. But like, to, and then I said, like, to be devil's advocate, that probably sounds identical to anyone that owns that recorder. Right. He just happened to own that. Right. Probably very popular, owned by most people in Germany. Like, eh, eh. Right. Eh, I don't. Okay. She said it was probable that the same recorder the police found in his home was also the same one used in the ransom calls. So the summation of the trial was in March of 2010. Instead of like the jury system we have in the US where it's what, like nine jurors, 10 jurors, something like that. Couldn't fucking tell you. It's got to be an odd number, I think. Maybe not. No, within it, 12? Because 12 angry oh, right. jurors. <laughs> 12 angry men? No, jurors. No, it's, it's a, a, or... the, you're talking about the movie? No, there's a book, isn't there? Oh, there's a movie called 12 Angry Men that I had to watch in my economics class. Yeah. Oof. Or no, it was in my government class. Anyway, so in Germany instead, it's three judges and two jurors that make the call, basically. So those three judges and two jurors found Masaryk guilty and sentenced him to life imprisonment. His wife was acquitted because of the lack of evidence suggesting she was even involved. Like, Right. Michael never really let what happened to his sister like overtake his life he was a very quiet unassuming man he got married and had three kids and even fostered a fourth which we love but he wouldn't let his family become victims again during this trial so that's why he took his role in the trial so seriously right so prior to the start of the trial michael had asked for full access to the case files which surprised prosecutors and lawyers because most co-plaintiffs aren't that like they don't want to see that they're not as invested i would be invested (laughs) so after reading through through six thousand pages of case information he understood why so much pointed to masaryk Mm -hmm. but he's still a little he was still unsure he was still on the fence right also didn't understand why all of a sudden the state was taking Fatfinger's confession so seriously when they didn't in the 80s like why all of a sudden it was right so heavily relied on Right. Faffinger was also a heavy alcoholic, and he claimed to have hallucinations while being held in detention. Love that. In 2008, his former wife called him lazy and sa- said he would never agree to dig a hole. <laughs> <laughs> Which, again, I hope that's how my future spouse speaks of me and my death. Same. Same. They're like, that bitch would never dig a hole. Come on. <laughs> So, Faffinger didn't even write his confession, and he didn't sign it. A detective who was there wrote it down weeks later from memory. That's suspicious. So, Masaryk and Faffinger did not have any DNA proof connecting them to the crime. So, most concerning to Michael was the tape recorder. With his background in music, he had a great deal of knowledge about sound engineering and acoustics. Right. Uh, The calls made to the Hermans were made from a payphone they were able to figure out. Mm Mm-hmm. So, the acoustics from the the phone booth and the kidnapper's home where the jingle was likely recorded would have a significant impact on what you ultimately heard at the Herman's house. Right. So while his, if his lawyer advised against it, Michael actually wrote a letter to the court saying the sound experts report was incomplete or one-sided. Right. When the verdict was announced, Michael made a statement saying he wasn't entirely convinced of his guilt or his innocence. Right. And during the trial, Masaryk actually had sent Michael a letter mm-hmm. suggesting that they were on the same side. And he didn't apologize or anything like that, just said that they were on the same side. Hmm. Okay. Michael continued to receive letters from Masaryk, and he even sent Michael a Christmas card. That's fucking weird. So it took three years, but in 2013... Michael finally replied to Masaryk. Right. He basically told him, I have my doubts you did it. I don't think you're a good person, but if you didn't do this, I hope evidence comes out that says you didn't. But if you did do this, go to hell. (laughs) Which is like fair. Fair. Right. So during the trial, Michael ended up developing tinnitus, which is like that ringing you hear in your Mm -hmm. ear from the stress of it. He was so incredibly dedicated to the case, which he believed he owed to his parents to pursue the truth. Right. In 2013, Michael filed a civil claim seeking 20,000 euros or 23,725 USD dollars today for causing his tendonitis. Love that. So Michael did this as kind of like a reverse psychology kind of thing. Right. Because Masaryk would argue that he couldn't be held responsible for giving him the tendonitis because he was wrongfully convicted. Right. So the courts would have to reevaluate the evidence in the criminal case to come to a conclusion in the civil one. Right. So if they came to the conclusion he didn't cause the tendonitis, then he was wrongfully convicted and shouldn't be in jail in the first place. Right. So the judges knew what was happening and were pissed. (laughs) 
So they tried to stop it from moving forward several different times and ultimately had Michael see an independent psychiatrist to rule whether the tendonitis was caused by the trial. When it was confirmed that it was, the case went on in 2016 and would drag on for more than two years. Oh, no. During the civil trial, burned, burned, I'm going to say B-E-R-N-D. Burnt? Burned, yeah. Uh, Hater appeared for the defense. He is a retired physicist and an amateur sound expert. He followed the original trial very closely Mm -hmm. and ended up borrowing the same tape recorder that they used in the trial and running his own tests. We love that. And concluded that it was not possible to replicate the phonetic expert's findings. Wow. This man is really going above and beyond. I love that. I love you love to see it. it. You love to see everyday heroes. (laughs) God bless. So he finds that. Right. So then Barbara Zipser is a German German born English resident. She's living in the UK and follow again, following the the case very closely. She was um, very young when this happened, and so like she feels an attachment to the case. She has a linguistics profiling background. Yes. Okay. She has a linguistics profiling background, and independently, she decided to compare the ransom notes, which were obviously posted online, right, to samples of Mazurk's handwriting that Hader had posted online. Mm-hmm. And her findings were that the person who composed the ransom notes were actually very well educated. Mm-hmm. But they were pretending to be a foreigner to kind of throw police off. Right. And was actually, like, highly likely that they were a native speak- German speaker. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was positive this was not Masaryk, based on that. Okay. After the criminal trial, Michael was on the fence about whether Masaryk did it. He said, I think, he was, like, when the criminal trial ended, he was at, like, 50% sure. Like, he wasn't sure he was guilty. He wasn't sure he was innocent. But now, he thinks there's just a 1% chance that he's the kidnapper. Right. Which is, like... He did basically. basically. Right. Yeah. So in August of 2018, the civil case finished and the courts ordered Masaryk to pay Michael 7,000 euros, which is 8,303 US dollars mm-hmm. today, which also is 2018. So that's probably accurate. It wasn't a win for Michael, though, because it meant that the judges came together and determined that the, they agreed on that criminal case. Right. So he just didn't, it wasn't a good thing for him. Right. So Michael's father actually died several years ago. And while he, he was, he continued, Michael continued to look into the case and just continued to try and find more evidence to prove that it wasn't Masaryk. Yep. And it was revealed that two students from the private school actually came forward seven or eight months after the kidnapping. And so they had found a wire like the one used in the alarm rig in the forest. Mm -hmm. They decided they had decided to keep it until the cops came around asking questions that they like handed them over. Weird. But uh, Michael thinks it's evidence that could help find the real kidnappers. And like they don't, he doesn't think that the police looked closely enough at the students Right. Because the students knew the forest just as well as the joggers and cyclists. Right. And another piece of piece of evidence that suggests a younger culprit is the impression on the... There's, like, an impression on the ransom paper mm-hmm. uh, on the other side. So, like, if you took a pa- pencil and, like, right. scribbled over it, you would see. Was looked like what would be a probability tree. Like, kind of what they would teach you in high school. Yeah. And they also said that in one of the comic books, in that array of books left in the box for her, one of the characters in the comic books drives a Fiat 600, which is what they told Ursula's dad to drive to drop off the ransom money. Right. So all of this is, like, pointing to, like, a younger culprit. Right. But in late 2017, trying to reopen the case... Michael submitted a file of all the new evidence and theories that he had to the prosecutor's office, hoping that this would move something forward. Spokesman for the public prosecutor acknowledged that there were a lot of people that still had a lot of questions about the verdict, but the 2010 judges came to the right decision and that was final. In August of 2018, it was finalized when they announced that they would not reopen the case. What the fuck? And it's just very, like, anticlimactic. So Ursula's mom, and after her father's death, or after her husband's death, excuse me, Ursula's mom moved out of the house, I think up north with, to one of her other daughters. 
Okay. Her youngest son, Hans, uh, the surfer, <laughs> lives now, now lives in the house with two, I think he said, I think it said two Syrian refugees that like rent out the basement kind of thing. They're all just trying to like move forward, but still like Michael is still wants justice for his sister, which I think is incredible. Right. And that was the article that I read this week that kept me up at night. That's super unsatisfying. I know. He Can you imagine trying to fall asleep after reading that? He definitely did not do it. There's no way. I don't think he did either. But I don't think it was like a student because that box was so heavy. There's no way. It would have to be like four, four or five of them. And there's no way you're going to keep four or five people quiet this long. But they found multiple DNA samples on that box. You're, but that's a lot of people to keep quiet. You're telling me... I mean, A did it in Pretty Little Liars. Yeah, but that's fictional. Like, <laughs> yeah. there's no... In my mind, right? there's no way you're going to keep, like... Because that was a heavy-ass box. You know, 132 yeah. pounds. There's no way you had less than four people. Because you had to have one to deal with, with uh, Ursula, right? And then you... Well, I mean... Think if you think about it, you really only need two. One to carry the top of the box, like one half of the box and the other, and then you bring it in, you put it in the hole, and then you get or you get Ursula, and then if she's drugged, you just slip her into the box. I definitely think there had to have been more. Because you've got to do this quietly and discreetly, right? Yeah. Which is why like you can't have more because more people would draw more attention. I don't know. I don't think they were like if they were boarding school kids, I mean how like old did this boarding school go to? I'm thinking like High school? I'm thinking it's a sec- I didn't say in the article, but I'm thinking it's like a secondary, like maybe like a middle school, high school combo. Right. I mean, I don't know. Like that's a lot to pull off. And the more people yeah. you involve, like the more risky it is because yeah. people blab. <laughs> so next week we have a, a great episode planned. Yes. A super fun one. Oh my gosh. All right. Well, where can they find you? You can find me on Goodreads, as Alicia Reads 13, or on Storygraph as Alicia Reads. Storygraph actually just introduced um, some new features, and I'm really liking it. They do half stars. Ooh. They do quarter, half, oh. and three quarter stars. So, what? Yeah, Goodreads. Goodreads, step up your get game. on it. Except for the only thing I don't like is you can't update what page you're on on Storygraph, and I love that. So, you should send them some feedback and let them know. Yeah, hopefully. Hopefully they get that, mm-hmm. and then I can just make the switch. <laughs> Storygraph, you heard it here. That's right. She needs a page counter, please. Please, I thrive off that shit. <laughs> <laughs> and you can find me on Twitter at HBI Cheska or on Instagram at Francesca Hope. And you can find uh, the Pod- podcast yes. on Twitter at Bookaholics Pod. And please rate and review us on iTunes. Please. It really helps a lot. Especially since Stephanie Meyer gave us our one-star review. But yes, please rate and review us on iTunes, Spotify, wherever you are listening to us. And we hope you enjoyed this one, and we'll see you for the next one. Bye!